Hey, everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist, emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And this is a very special mini episode where we're going to be discussing bupropion seizures and bupropion delayed seizures. And with me on this episode to discuss the literature surrounding this toxicologic conundrum is Dr. Ari Phillip. Hey, my name is Ari Phillip. I'm the medical director over at the Arkansas Poison Center also work as a medical toxicologist down here and an ER attending physician at UAMS here in Little Rock, Arkansas. Why are we doing this episode? Bupropion is notorious for seizures. It was actually taken off the market in the 1980s for causing too many seizures at therapeutic doses and then reintroduced just a year or so later at a lower dose, assuming that would solve the problem. Yeah, I don't know too many other medications where the the problem is that the patient sees and then the solution is not to take it off the market, but just to scale back for a year or two and then just re-release it out into the wild at a lower dose. That is a uh, an interesting strategy, I agree. And it's not just that bupropion causes seizures. There's lots of drugs that cause seizures. It's the fact that there are many different products, immediate release products, sustained release products, which joined us in 1996, and then extended release products, which came out in 2003. In fact, this is the predominant product on the US market, this extended release. And each one of these products can cause seizures at different times because of the fact that they have delayed release mechanisms. You know. Uh, we do see some immediate release products still in the form of combination products, uh, such as the bupropion naltrexone topiramate product called Contrave, or the terrifying product, bupropion. Dr. Philip is shaking his head right now. He already is, is terrified of this one. I know I am. But the bupropion dextromethorphan combination. Right. Yeah, interesting to see how that one will play out in the poison yeah. center side. It's it certainly uh, has a number of conundrums I'm worried about, but but what we really seem to have issues with are there's multiple products and there are multiple uh, timeframes from which we can see a seizure, both from the product that's ingested, from co-ingestions the patients may have taken, and from the amount of product that the patient took. So we're going to talk about the varying studies that we have, the limited data uh, that can help us predict who is going to experience a delayed seizure and help us understand who actually needs longer monitoring or continued monitoring. So we're going to dive in. I think first we need to look at when do seizures occur when we're looking at each product. So I'm going to talk about this first study. Study one, the appropriate overdose, a three-year multicenter retrospective analysis. Which was done by Henry Spiller in 1994, as well as a number of other poison centers that looked at immediate release bupropion products. That was the only thing on the market at the time. So this was a 1994 study of cases called into three poison centers, and they looked at 58 single substance bupropion ingestions. So that's important because there is no confounding ingestions. This is only people who just took bupropion and not other proconvulsant or anticonvulsant agents. Uh, and they had 58 single substance bupropion ingestions. 12 of those patients or 20% had a seizure. 
the dosages reported were anywhere from 575, which is not very much, uh, milligrams, all the way up to four grams. The mean time to a seizure in the immediate release group was 3.7 hours, or four hours roughly. But some of the seizures were reported as late as eight hours. So even in the immediate release group, I'm seeing seizures as far as eight hours and on average, you know, about four hours. Study one takeaway. So my takeaway from this, seizures occur in bupropion overdose and some as late as eight hours, even in the immediate release group. But like I said, we don't see immediate release very often. It's not all that common anymore. Much more often we're dealing with extended release and sustained release products. So Dr. Philip, can you tell us about the sustained release products? Study two, intentional bupropion overdoses. Yeah. So the sustained release formulation um, came out in uh, 96, the the extended release that came out in 2003. And uh, so they ended up having the, the first review of the sustained release presentation back in 2004. And this was a paper out of Texas by Shepard. And this was a study of 277 patients. They looked at retrospectively, 95% were sustained release ingestions. And in these patients, they saw an overall seizure rate of 14.8%, large range of um, ingestions, anywhere from uh, 600 milligrams to to 18 grams, Um, uh, six regular release, 29 sustained release, and six unknown um, among those 41 patients who seized. And in the patients that had a known ingestion time, still 85% of the seizures occurred within six hours, but one of them occurred as late as 14 hours. And when you look at kind of the histogram of when uh, these seizures happened, there's really not some perfect, uh, you know, middle point. We see stragglers at nine hours, 10 hours. So, and and multiple cases where the timing of the seizure couldn't be discerned because the time of ingestion wasn't wasn't well known. But the, the key thing here is that Patients who developed seizures, all except for one, had um, persistent neurologic deficits before uh, seizing. Now, in one of these cases, it was unusual in that it lacked a prodrome and the seizure occurred nine hours later. This is an ingestion of 45 tabs of bupropion. Patient was asymptomatic, was discharged, and then four hours later returned to the ED after witness seizure. And this is the thing that we all absolutely worry about and partly sparks this discussion. Who are the patients that are going to look like a peach um, with no symptoms and then wind up seizing, you know, in the, on the psych floor or at home? Study two takeaway. So my big takeaway from this is that seizures that occur with these sustained release products can occur late, you know, up to 14 hours. And there does appear to be a neurologic prodrome in most of these cases, but it, not, not always. Um, And we need to consider that this can happen in the absence of some of these mental status changes. Absolutely. And and it's tough. This is, you know, poison center data. It doesn't get very granular into what those neurologic symptoms, is it insomnia? Is it anxiety? Where do you draw that line? So what I take from this, yeah, you can seize late and I should be more concerned if you have neurologic symptoms occurring. I'm not going to put you into that low risk category yet. I just wish I had more granularity on what those neurologic symptoms were. The next study we're going to look at is going to break that down a little bit more, which is helpful. So let's jump into the next study. Study three, incidents and onset of delayed seizures after overdoses of extended release bupropion. By Paul Starr. This was done in 2009. 
of primarily uh, extended release products. So this was a three-year multi-poison center observational study. It was two years prospective and one year retrospective. So kind of a, a mix of data there of extended release products with no co-ingestions. So this is great. Uh, you know, it limits our external validity. Obviously, patients we see frequently have co-ingestions, but this really helps us answer the question of, hey, that person who took a bunch of bupropion, of XL bupropion, when are they going to seize removing all these other confounding things? And all patients were required to have been observed in a hospital setting for a minimum of 24 hours from ingestion. Also a really strong point in this study. They didn't just say, oh, I watched it for six hours and they didn't seize and I marked this off as they have not seized. They watched all patients for 24 hours. So we really had a good time frame to look for uh, seizures to develop. And overall, they included 116 single substance extended release bupropion ingestions, and they saw a seizure rate of 31.6%, which is a little terrifying. That's pretty high. But uh, the lowest dose they saw seizures in was 600 milligrams, and uh, in 67%, the initial seizure occurred in eight hours or less. So two-thirds of patients had a seizure within eight hours. That's wonderful. But 24% of patients had a seizure after nine hours. So nearly one in four patients with an extended release bupropion ingestion were seizing after nine hours, and the range was 11 to 24 hours. Five of the seizures occurred after 12 hours, suggesting that that might be an inadequate observation time in these extended release patients. Uh, they did look at gastrointestinal decontamination. It didn't seem to impact whether or not the patients had a seizure, interestingly enough. But they did look at some parameters to predict whether or not you would have a seizure. They saw that tachycardia had a positive predictive value of 45.3%, but a negative predictive value, very importantly, of 92.9%. So if your patient did not have tachycardia, it was a 92.9% negative predictive value for the development of a seizure. And that, I think, is a useful tool, at least mentally, to help us stratify a little bit as to whether or not your patient is going to develop a seizure. It's not perfect, obviously. It would miss nearly 1 in 12. But it it is something that we can use. They also looked at a few other things, agitation, tremor, and hallucination. And they found that tremor and agitation had a high association with seizures. They had negative predictive values between 70 and 75%. Study three, takeaway. What I take away from this is that many seizures occur after eight hours in the extended release products and up to 24 hours, which is a little scary. A prodrome does often precede them though. And that prodrome is often a tachycardia, and either tremors or agitation. Uh, tachycardia had the highest negative predictive value. So if you didn't have tachycardia, you were very unlikely to have a seizure. So our non-tachycardic, non-agitated, non-tremulous patients are probably low risk. But as kind of demonstrated by the previous study by Shepard, there were some small amount of patients that might slip through that crack too. Uh, and one issue, one limitation with this study is its poison center data. So if you have tachycardia at any point, whether it's before or after the seizure, it's going to get documented as tachycardia being present. They also don't really describe the degree of tachycardia or how long it was present. 
So it's hard to use, you know, okay, you have somebody with a heart rate of 101 versus 150, they probably have some differences in their risk. Uh, and I think that's going to take us to our next study. Yeah, and I, I will say I really like that you described it as risk stratification, um, which is an elegant way to to put it, because while I would love to have something that would be able to say that we could rule it out, you know, a negative predicted value of 99%, you right. know, doing, doing some back of the envelope math that looks like, you know, this is going to miss one in 14 people. And uh, as, as an ER doctor who likes a really high level of um, diagnostic clarity, uh, that's, that's just not good enough for me. I don't want one in 14 people to go seize at home or, you know, on the psych ward or, or somewhere else. Um, so r- really good tools to, to, I agree, or stratify, but not necessarily rule out. Study four, bupropion-associated seizures following acute overdose, who develops late seizures. So yeah, this next paper, clearly we, we have some questions that remain. Uh, this next paper came out during my fellowship. I, I really uh, like it. This is a paper by Offerman and, uh, and group in 2020. And so this was a review of patients from a single integrated healthcare system that included 20 hospitals and they used medical record data, which is uh, as much as I uh, hate to admit it, much higher quality data than uh, poison center data. It is what it is. Um, and so they looked at 437 bupropion ingestions. Uh, again, 95% of them were uh, sustained or extended release. So pretty much almost all of what we're seeing now. Uh, 90% of them were in adults. Um, the majority of them, 78% in, uh, intentional. And it looked at a, a more representative patient population in that 54% of them had co-ingestion. Um, so probably more closely mirrors our patients. Similar proportion had seizures, uh, 27.9%. And uh, only eight of these, uh, 6.5%, so still a non-trivial number, had late seizures greater than eight hours from arrival. Um, this is a, a smaller number that we're seeing in some of these other studies. Uh, this could just be because a lot of these patients at this point, knowing how dangerous it is, are referred in for just you know small super therapeutic injections, medication errors. So uh, we saw some things about these patients and we saw some more granular data about the patients who seize and specifically the patients who had delayed um, seizures. And so none of the patients who had delayed seizures, so seizures greater than eight hours from arrival, were asymptomatic. So meaning all of them had either altered mental status or tachycardia on arrival. There were some factors and tachycardia, I mean, heart rate greater than 100, and they, they did get into the weeds a little bit on the heart rate. Tachycardia, they described as heart rate greater than 100, um, sustained tachycardia, heart rate greater than 100 for two hours, and significant tachycardia, heart rate greater than 120 for two hours. And they also saw some other risk factors that would that were contributed to these patients likely having seizure, hypotension, altered mental status on arrival, and again, either sustained or significant tachycardia. And when we look at the patients specifically that had um, delayed seizures greater than 12 hours out, 100% of them had altered mental status on arrival, which is just, I will say, you know, I want to pause for a second. With what you mentioned before, one of the hard things is we don't really know what altered mental status means in this situation. You know, were they um, agitated? Was this tremor? Did they feel anxious? Were they obtunded? Um, and could this have even still been clouded by the retrospectoscope? And that when this patient sees this 12 hours later, it's like, oh, yeah, maybe, you know, they were a little more 
Um, maybe they had a little more symptoms than we initially they, thought. They were acting goofy, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they 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 didn't control ingestion um, uh, time of ingestion to time of arrival. So we don't know if um, so. None of the patients who seized late were asymptomatic on arrival, but we don't know how many of those arrived immediately after versus a lot later. And so that if I can interject for a second, I think that's one of the. Th- things that might differentiate why we're seeing such different numbers with this as opposed to the le- the last one was reporting you know a significant amount of delayed seizures this one only 6.8% i think you said uh, seized greater than 8 hours f- from arrival they're quoting from arrival not from ingestion time as opposed to the last study was looking at just from ingestion time one of the major limitations in this study is that I don't see a lot about controlling for time of ingestion. So you may have arrived 18 hours after your ingestion. And if you have a seizure then, well, that's considered one hour from arrival, right? So that's kind of one of the issues that I'm running into here. They don't do a ton of controlling, which you can't, obviously, you know, patient reported ingestion times are very unreliable, but, uh, I think I run into issues with that. With If I'm looking at trying to use this data for predicting the natural course of a, of a seizure after an ingestion, you know, on an island, I'm not sure if it's helpful. It is helpful in looking at who's going to seize after they show up to the hospital, which is who we usually deal with. But that that's one of the limitations I noticed. Yeah. And the, the authors comment on that. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, it's it's going to more appropriately mimic the real world situation where we're going to have a patient. the The known is going to be when they show up to the ER. The unknown is going to be when they actually ingested um, ingested their medications. Study four takeaway. My main takeaways from this: um, bupropion again causes late seizures, um, and prolonged observation times are warranted. Uh, even though the risk of seizure, if the patient is asymptomatic for greater than 12 hours, it may be very low. These patients still do seize 12 to 24 hours out. Uh, it did a really good job of pointing towards things that really raised my eyebrows and make me worried that a patient is going to seize persistent tachycardia, um, altered mental status uh, with, with tachycardia and marked or sustained tachycardia being a harbinger of seizures. One thing, which is a, a big limitation of this and some other studies is that some of this, some of these vital sign derangements could potentially be masked by co-ingestion. You know, I think about the number of patients where, uh, you know, I get the call and I'm like, oh, well, good thing they took all the uh, clonazepam with their venlafaxine, you know, um, or, you know, some of the symptoms might necessarily be masked. But there are certainly some case reports of people having uh, poor outcomes and severe and delayed symptoms with uh, some falsely reassuring initial vital signs, like one case that was published in Toxicology Communications by Dr. Liss up at, up at WashU, a patient who seized, by, seized in delayed fashion with, after a concomitant ingestion of an alpha-2 agonist. And this is something that I really, really worry about um, in these co-ingestions. And so often just have to have to consider this in the context of their, their co-ingestion. Right. It's It's tough when there's absent literature, right? I mean, when we have no information, even a, a morsel tends to occupy a large amount of our mind. We we have two studies that show that persistent or that tachycardia increases your risk of seizure. This Offerman trial shows, okay, persistent tachycardia greater than two hours or a heart rate greater than 120, both 
portend to a higher likelihood of seizure. Okay. Well, all that does is in my mind, as soon as I hear about a bupropion ingestion, I want to know their heart rate. But I might not always think, hey, what else did they co-ingest? In uh, this study, these these two case reports of a co-ingestion of alpha-2 agonists leading to delayed seizures up to, I think it was 24 hours out. Yeah, one occurred at 20.5 hours and the other one at 23 hours. Both of the patients had minor symptoms initially due to the cocktail of drugs that they had ingested, which was bupropion and guanfacine or bupropion and clonidine. So we really have to be careful about anchoring too hard on some of these risk stratifiers, uh, especially in the setting of a co-ingestion. I think that's a, a wonderful thing to bring up. These are the things that they keep me up at night, just like that uh, that case of the patient with um, neuroimaging showing brain death um, who had a full <laughs> neurologic recovery. It's, like you said, these little morsels that, uh, you know, you never you never want yours to be the case. So what can we take from the evidence about late bupropion seizures? The final takeaway. Bupropion is a difficult toxin to triage due to its potential for delayed seizures and the difficulty in estimating who will experience those delayed seizures. We've discussed the limited literature that is available. There are some final takeaways I think we can extrapolate here. Number one, extended and delayed release bupropion products carry risks for seizures 12 to 24 hours out. So don't get caught up in the trap of sending one of these toxic time bombs home without adequate observation time and discussion with the toxicologist on an appropriate observation. Other key point, altered mental status, tremor, agitation, these are commonly going to precede seizures. Now, defining exactly what altered mental status is, is difficult sometimes, but it sounds like if the patient isn't behaving quite right, this is not something to shrug off. Another parameter we can use to stratify our seizure risk are cardiovascular parameters, such as hypotension and tachycardia. In fact, tachycardia is the most consistent predictor of seizures with both duration and intensity. So do not dismiss a mild tachycardia as anxiety in a bupropion overdose. And recognize that this harbinger sign might also be masked by co-ingestions, so don't fall into that trap either. And lastly, while a lot is unknown about exactly who will seize, we know that you are likely not low risk until neurologic symptoms and tachycardia have resolved. So any patient with these symptoms likely needs continued monitoring. Excellent. Thank you for joining the show today and helping us break down this literature and try to figure out what we can do with some of these challenging patients. I really appreciate you providing your perspective, Dr. Philip. Yeah, that was definitely a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Ryan here. There was one more study that we didn't get to talk about in this episode. It was published in 2021, more recently than all of the other trials that we just talked about, and it was from the Toxic Investigators Consortium, a group of researchers prospectively collecting data points on overdoses treated in hospitals. This is useful because they can abstract specific outcomes of interest that might get missed in other forms of retrospective data collection. Either way, they looked at three years' worth of bupropion overdoses and found very similar things to what we just discussed. Tachycardia, defined as a pulse greater than 140, was significantly associated with seizures. Additionally, they found that age between 13 and 18, and even prolongation of the QTC, 
were all risk factors for developing seizures. So nothing too mind-blowing compared to what we just talked about, but wanted to let you know about that study as well. I'll put it in the show notes with the rest. That is going to wrap it up for our mini episode. Thanks for listening and learning a little bit more about which of your patients is high risk for experiencing not just a seizure, but potentially a delayed seizure from bupropion. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to check out our other mini episode that was released alongside this about the cardiac conduction effects of bupropion with Dr. Travis Olives. It is a really great deep dive into why we believe bupropion has gap junction blocking effects and not sodium channel blocking effects. If you like what you're listening to, make sure you subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen, Apple, Spotify, Google, anywhere. And leave us a review. It helps us reach other people who are interested in learning about toxicology. You can follow the show on Twitter at LabPoison, myself at EMPoisonFarmD. We have an Instagram, Tox underscore Talk, and a Facebook page, The Poison Lab. You can always go to our website, www.thepoisonlab.com, to find every free episode, free medical games, and other free resources anytime. Lastly, don't forget to leave us a review wherever you're listening. It helps us reach other people interested in staying up to date and informed about toxicology subjects. All right. Thanks for listening today. Hope you can tune in next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates. See you next time.